It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to Welcome old to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going through Moby Dick chapter by chapter. Uh... But today, uh, we thought it might be fun to start out with uh, just, you know, some some talk about um, what we've been up to lately, specifically because uh, last night Ben was playing and I was watching him play uh, a game that is all about sailing, I guess? It's it's more of a um, ocean death sim... No, that's not quite right. A dying under 20,000 atmospheres of pressure simulator that has sailing in it, sort of. It's, it's called Nauticrawl, uh, 20,000 Atmospheres, and it's about, um, it's, it's science fiction. It's set on a world that might have an ocean or might have a really heavy atmosphere. It is genuinely really ambiguous in the text, which I've been really enjoying. And you are an escaped worker from the capital of this horrible um, place. Again, there's not a ton of information in the game about stuff except what you piece together. And you have stolen a Nauticrawl, which I keep thinking is called a Nauticrawler, but the game keeps insisting is called a Nauticrawl, which is a big robot-y thing that trudges, trudges? Trudges. Trudges along the bottom of the questionable alien ocean, uh, getting shot at by the sentry turrets and pursued by the uh, cops and uh, devoured by the land squids that are in between you and freedom. And also you start off with no idea how this machine works. You've just got like a little radar screen and some dials and some levers. And so uh, my friends were having a lot of fun watching me desperately try to make this thing move in the right direction and not die. I didn't die though. It's true. You totally survived the whole time you were playing last night. Um, I mean, you weren't totally new to this game, so it's like, you know, the first time you play this game, you're like, what the fuck are all these switches? But by this point, you were like, oh yeah, that uh, if that light turns red, that means everything is bad. And uh, use this switch to turn on the battery. Like, you knew what you were doing a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's like, um, there's a moment in the Venture Brothers where they have the problem light. There's the problem light. If it turns red, bad. And that's about the sophistication of devices that you're working with. Um, Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of fun if you really enjoy, like, oblique, unclear instructions and struggling to figure out how to make things operate, which I do for some reason. Oh, and when you get a weapon, spoilers, you do eventually get a weapon, it's a not-gun, and it shoots bolins. And I got a bolin for it, and I just had a... Fucking blast. That was amazing. A bolin is a kind of sailing knot that's really useful, really versatile. Um, it's probably one of, like, the three knots you would learn if you ever did basic sailing camp kind of stuff. It's really cute how excited you get when, like, the concept of a bolin or, like, in general sailing knots comes up. They're um, very good. <laughs> I mean, you know, I get it. Like, I, uh, I get excited when the, like, various sorts of, um like, handcrafts that I know about are are under discussion. 
Um, yeah, yeah. And, and specifically, I don't actually have a huge repertoire of sailing knots. So a bowline is a really, uh, it's a really stalwart knot. It's one I know. So when I run into a bowline, I can just be like, yeah, my knot. <laughs> it's also like the, the classic sailing knot. I, there, there's some gag in some eh, comedy that was like, let's talk about our favorite knots. The Bolin. And I just, I went wild. I just absolutely started, like, applauding, despite the fact that this is objectively a bad joke. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like, uh, I mean, it's, it is a little funny that, like, your, your favorite knot that, like, you will always pop for is also, like, the default that you use for everything on a ship. Yeah, um, I mean, that's that's why I like it so much. It's like, <laughs> okay, what do we need to do this with? Well, are we tying a thing to another thing? That's a bowlin! <laughs> that's not actually true. There are situations where you don't want to use a bowlin for that. But, but, for most of the time, especially if you're sailing like a small boat on a lake or something, it's a relatively easily rigged boat, you're going to be tying like a few stopper knots, which are meh, and like maybe two bowlins, and the bowlins are great. Um, wait, so what, I mean, obviously it has many functions, but like, what actually is the, the main purpose of a bowline? Like, okay, to we... attach two things to each other? <sighs> okay, so a bowline basically creates a knot that won't slip even if you reduce slack on it or it, or like, even if you, sorry, tighten it up or increase the slack on it, it won't tend to slip or open up, and it can be tied around another another line, tied around a post on uh, land, tied around a, um, a cleat. Basically, it creates a loop that you can tie pretty tightly, and that loop won't change size. And that's another important thing, is that the loop won't constrict around mm -hmm. the thing it's on. So untying a bowline is also relatively simple, because while it can get waterlogged, while it'll tighten from being pulled, it won't tighten the loop, it'll just tighten the knot. Whereas, for example, you know, a, a slipknot kind of thing or any kind of hitch will pull tighter on the thing it's on and will constrict it when it, um, when it gets pulled on, when it, when it uh, takes up, when it loses slack. Right. And yeah. so a bowline, because it's this very static knot, it'll stay like that. And if someone knows knots better than I do and explains why I'm fucking this up later, I will talk about it in the next episode or however many episodes on that is possible. So let me know if I'm fucking up knots. But, um... A bowline... Yeah, that actually... Hmm? Uh, that... Sorry, go on, finish what you're saying. No, 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 just a bowlin, um, because it doesn't uh, constrict or loosen open with either being slack or taut, it's an incredibly versatile knot whenever you want to fix something to something else. It's, it's called a bowlin because it is a bow line, like the bow of the ship, the line that goes off it that you tie onto things technically, that can also be called a bow line or a bow line, uh, though it's often called the painter, presumably to distinguish it from the knot, which is called the bowline or bowline. Yeah, um, you reminded me uh, by mentioning the concept of like somebody maybe correcting you on knot minutia, um, that this is also the first time we're recording an episode um, since uh, we actually started putting our podcast out. We made it! Yeah, yeah, we're, we're now hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network, um, which, big thanks to them. Um, it's, it's been golf clap, golf clap, really golf awesome. Clap. Thank you so much. Uh, to have, like, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm friends with um, Jackson and M, who are the hosts of the podcast Abnormal Mapping. Um, but also, uh, they've just been, they have, like, a really 
cool thing where they will help other, you know, independent podcast creators uh, get hosting. So that's like, you know. Uh, we really uh, appreciate it. It's wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to mention that, at least on this episode. Um, yeah. <sighs> Okay, did I, do I have any other Bolin things? I, oh, right. <laughs> you may have learned how to tie a Bolin uh, if you did, you know, various kinds of summer camp activities that might be connected to it. Or, And it's one of the, like, two knots that has that I'm aware of that have, like, a teaching uh, set of teaching instructions involving a rabbit going around a tree. The other one is the, uh, you know, the standard bow for your, if you're tying shoelaces, but the bowlin also has, uh, the rabbit goes around the tree and then back in the hole and then back out of the hole, uh, set of instructions to help tie it. Um, which wasn't actually how I learned how to tie a bowlin, and, uh, frankly, I think was, is probably a slightly better way of learning than, don't tell my family I ever said that. Oh my god, wow. Um. Do you not want them to listen to your podcast then? That was rhetorical. I mean, also, uh, <laughs> I'm fine with family members of my generation or lower listening to my podcast, um, but the idea of my my, my wonderful parents or uh, anyone from that generation who are really lovely people, um, it, it's it's sort of like a, this is probably inevitable, but then I'm going to have to sustain conversation with, uh, with, with relatives where they're like, oh, it's so lovely you have a podcast. I'll be like, thanks. I make bad jokes about Moby Dick online now. I mean, it's a podcast about Moby Dick. That's pretty respectable. Yeah, I guess that's true. Well, actually, no. Here's the actual reason that I'm uh, worried about this, is that they are absolutely going to correct me about knots. Like, Well, they won't hear this for months, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but... Um, yeah, no, sailing minutia is a, is a thing in my family. Um, we famously, uh, when there's more than two of us on a boat... Uh, there will always be someone who's not currently doing things, which means they can devote all their energy to explaining why you're doing it slightly wrong. You can you can tell when the, the Sidemen family is on a boat, a large boat, because you can hear wafting across the water, you're pinching, no, you're luffing, you're pinching, you're luffing, you're pinching, you're still pinching, you're luffing, and that just goes yeah. on indefinitely. It's true. Um... That has happened when there has been no wind. Which, which For the means that you cannot be pinching or luffing. Yes. <laughs> I was about to... Sorry. Uh, yeah. Pinching is when you have the uh, the sail in too far, and it's not officially uh, uh, efficiently gathering the wind and using it. And luffing is when the sail is out too far and is not taut enough, uh, the sailcloth will sort of flap, and that's generally how you can tell it's luffing. There's ways to tell that you're pinching beyond just, I don't, I think this is in too far. And there's ways to tell that you're luffing beyond it physically flapping. And it's going to depend on the style of boat and the size of sail and so on. And all of these are about triangular sails. And I genuinely don't know whether a square-sailed square square sailed ship shows any of the same signs. But the same basic concept of you're pinching, you're luffing, as you go, as you tighten the, the rope slightly, and release the rope slightly, and then tighten the rope slightly, and then release the rope slightly. Or, if you're on a larger ship, you just sail slightly towards the wind or away from them, and you just wobble your course back and forth, trying to find the sweet spot where your relatives won't criticize you. It, it is one of those things where, like, um, you know, uh, uh, there is, like, a theoretical medium where you are using 100% of the wind available to you, but you're not, like, spilling any of it, um, that is essentially impossible to reach, right? Like, you are always on one or the other side of that line. I mean, in my experience, yes. 
According to the the received wisdom of my family, you can absolutely hit that sweet spot, and when you do, it's the best thing ever. Yeah. Um. Not a crawl is like that, except it's me yelling at myself about the fact that I've let the heat gauge get too large, and I'm being shot by turrets and devoured by land squid. Just realizing that there's sort of a, a generational legacy of uh, terrible boat incidents that I've now taken to the digital realm <laughs> for my friend's entertainment. It's true. It it was very entertaining for me. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing that. It, it seems like it might be... I've been warned it's a kind of short game once you actually get things working, but uh, it was on sale when I got it. Yeah, I, I definitely got the sense... Um, you know, uh, I don't want to spoil anyone if, in case they want to go play this game. Um, but I got the sense when you were, like, getting the coordinates for that place that you wanted to go that, like, possibly getting there would be basically the end of the game. Um, That's and... true, but one of the Nauticrawl modes that I've accessed has, like, a lot of levers that I have no idea what they do. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess so, those all... There and, must be content that explains those at some point. So, yes, yeah. and I've only visited one of, now two, of, I think, five or six new locations that I accessed after the thing. You know, this is getting impossible. Um, there's a bunch <laughs> of stuff that I hope has content and will force me to go through a hellish maze of turrets and land squid because I truly enjoy doing that. Um, but until then... Uh, I don't know. I just, maybe it does end rather abruptly. We'll see. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's basically all the, the sort of stuff going on that I wanted to mention. Um, so ready to get into our chapters? Sure. Let's, uh, let's, let's meet Ahab. Yeah. So, uh, today we are reading chapters 28 through 31. Uh, so, starting with chapter 28, it is titled Ahab. Um, and uh, we are finally going to actually see Ahab. Uh, which, you know, uh, this book definitely, like, has has been leaving us in, in immense suspense about, like, Oh, actual... yeah, no, I mean, well, we say we're going to see Ahab, and we literally are only going to see him. He doesn't say anything in this entire chapter. Yes, that, that is true. His, his first line isn't until the next chapter. Um, so, uh, to get into it, uh, for the first several days of the voyage, um, Ahab still remains totally in his cabin the entire time and leaves the running of the ship to the mates. Um, and Ishmael is extremely anxious to see Ahab this whole time, uh, in part because he keeps remembering uh, all the confusing, ominous stuff that Elijah said. Um, Same. Was, yeah, that was back in chapter 19, um, in our episode 6, uh, in case you don't remember what that oh, was That was about. longer ago than I thought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, um, they've actually been... I was going to say they've been on the Pequod for a while, but that's... A better way of putting it would be, like, the... Um, you know, the book has been set on the Pequod for a little while. Yeah, now. and it's been introducing uh. the characters... Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but eventually Ahab does appear um, and, uh, you know, set foot on the deck. And Ishmael uh, compares his appearance 
um, to, I'm just going to quote this, because uh, I can't really think of a good way to summarize it that gets across what he's saying. He says that he looks like a man cut away from the stake when the fire has overrunningly wasted all the limbs without consuming them. Um, which is like a, frankly, a terrifying mental image that Ahab looks like a someone who's partway through burning to death. Yeah, um, um, he also says uh, his whole high, broad form seemed made of solid bronze and shaped in an unalterable mold, like Cellini's cast Perseus, which... First of all, I, I looked it up, and it's it's a real cool statue, and this implies Ahab is uh, getting ahead of himself. Eh? Eh? It, it, it's, it's Perseus holding up the head of Medusa. Oh! <sighs> okay. Uh, I, I, I love that I get to do that from a safe distance. <laughs> Thanks, Skype. <laughs> Wisconsin won't protect you, Ben. <laughs> You'll um. find that it will. Um but yeah, no, I really love this this description of Ahab in the physical in the physical sense, and that that phrase you actually quoted is something I'd pulled out to uh, to both point to and maybe read because, goddamn, just yeah, wow the the phrase the the degree to which Ahab's sort of physical body expresses his inner character is I mean okay that's that's present in a lot of the characters in this book. There's very much a sense yeah. of, like, physiognomy as personality and the idea that your personal uh, qualities will show up in your frame. But I think Ahab probably at least has the most aggressive version of that. Certainly we're getting a lot of physical description of Ahab. Just, like, in general, there's much, like, we just had uh, chapters that described, like, pretty much the other members of the crew, and Ahab is getting the most de detail here. Yeah, and he's um. also not described in terms of his personality yet, except, for example, the idea of one cut away from the stake, which is really gestural, and it's not it's not specifically saying what personality that stands for, but it's like, well... It, it gives you a very strong impression, for sure. Um, and I yes. think, also, I, uh, as... As we're talking about um, Ahab's physical appearance, the other, like, most notable thing about this um, is uh, he has he has a striking, like, vertical mark on his face and neck. Um, like, sort of a, a scar or a birthmark or something like that. Um, which Specifically, Ishmael... whether that mark was born with him or whether it was the scar left by some desperate wound, no one could certainly say. Yeah, exactly how Ahab got this mark is a, a topic of discussion. Um, but Ishmael compares it, at least visually, to uh, a mark left on a tree by a lightning strike. Um, Which is really interesting for Gnostic reasons. Uh, that'll, that'll, there's, a, there's a very, very, very Gnostic chapter much later in the book that is the storm and has Ahab and lightning having a conversation, sort of. I'm not going yeah. to go into details on that right now, because I'm pretty sure that's a section that you didn't reach in your read-through, so I don't want to spoil anything further. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think I know the passage you're talking about, so I think I may have re reached it, or okay. if not, if not actually reached that in my previous read-through, I think, I think you have drawn my attention to it before. Okay, it's, but it's um, really cool. Um, no, it is. I remember, I remember it being very cool. So, um, I think the idea that Ahab is lightning struck is one that we should probably sort of hold on to going forward. Yeah, I, it's also, um... It's interesting, so what Ishmael says is that um, the crew sort of mostly doesn't talk about Ahab's mark, um, you know, presumably because 
they're all scared of him and they don't want to offend him. Yeah, it's also um, described as a slender rod-like mark, lividly whitish. Dis- uh, and that's just such a lividly whitish, in this book in particular, mm, is yes. an interesting term. Yeah, I mean, um, that's that's a good point. I think um, certainly, so so the, the there's there's two like theories that Ishmael presents as to like um, how he got this mark that he gets from two different elderly sailors on the Pequod. Uh, so there's there's one uh, who says that Ahab received it uh, quote in an elemental strife at sea. Um, which really makes it sound like he literally got it by hitting by being hit with lightning. Oh yeah, no, um, that's it's it says full forty years old, uh, not in the fury of any mortal fray, but in an elemental strife at sea. And I can imagine if it only goes down his head that like a line whipped at him, that's a way to uh, lose an eye or a leg, uh, or a um, like a shard. Uh, fun fact: Shiver me timbers refers to the splintering of a mast by cannon fire or uh, extreme wind, and the. The, the timber being the mask and the shivers being the, the splinters that fly out of that and can do serious damage to people. Um, so he may have been, something may have shivered him. Uh, and that could be a way an elemental strife could have done it, but it's really strongly implied to be lightning. It's just not stated to be lightning in this theory. Yeah. Um, while the, the other theory, or the, the other claim, uh, is, is that it's a birthmark um, that runs the entire length of his body. Uh, so... You know, like when he co- when he dies and like comes to be laid out, whoever does that will discover that he has a line down the entire, you know, down his entire side. Um, I just realized that there's a, a fascinating element of irony in that. Because uh, I think as we've mentioned before, spoilers, this this will not be a good voyage for a number of people. And we've already seen that sailors don't get funerals, or rather they get funerals sort of in potentia back at the chapel. Mm, yes, it's true. And, and like, actually, um, they do, like, the, what, what's literally said is, if ever Captain Ahab should be tranquilly laid out, which might hardly come to pass, so he might. Yes. So, like, clearly there isn't an expectation that that will happen. It's just, like, it's almost like this is the only context in which I can imagine someone seeing Ahab naked. <laughs> wow, that's a good point. He has a wife! He has a kid! Yeah, New Englanders. Uh, presumably, they kept their clothes on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're 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 Quakers. Oh. They're they're nineteenth century Quakers. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also but, interesting. Uh, um, sorry, just looking at the two theories like this. Uh, first of all, I do want to point out that we still have. Um, there's still some of that sort of, uh, you know, that that weird racial framework that we ran into in the last right. uh, last chapter, um, specifically. Uh, both of the people putting forward ideas, one of them's a Manxman, which is uh, from the Isle of Man off of uh, England, which is very much like a a white ethnicity, but still a marked ethnicity in this time. And the other's a Native American who's um, also from Gayhead, so uh, Tashtego's senior, as he's described in the book. So there's this sense of like, uh, I mean, frankly, ancient ethnic wisdom. Uh, involved in both of these and one of them says it's from a lightning strike and the other one says it's a birthmark but specifies that it would run the entire length of his body which means that the one saying it's a birthmark is actually describing it very similarly to how Ishmael describes the mark of lightning on a tree where it'll run the entire length of the tree down to the bottom yeah I, I the sense that I get from like Ishmael's description of the the lightning struck tree is that Ishmael is kind of combining these two accounts. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's imagining the elemental strife 
Um, but he's also imagining the like from top to crown version of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is particularly interesting you because mean from crown to foot. Oh yeah. Top to crown yes. would be like a little circle. Yes. Sorry. Um, yeah, and and specifically, Ahab says um, that like the all the white sailors on the Pequod, you know, basically believed the the Manxman's birthmark account, um, because I, I mean, you know, he says because people like believed that this particular guy had, um, you know, preternatural powers of discernment, um, but but the fact that he makes that explicit racial distinction also makes it clear that, like, people are listening to, uh, you know, what a European has to say about this uh, more than a native. But clearly Ishmael gives at least some credit to both accounts. Yeah. Mm. Um, in the um, in the same, just quickly getting, th- getting through the, the, uh, the racial physiognomy stuff, um, there's also a mention briefly that uh, Ishmael's anxieties are quelled in this... Um, you know, uh, despite the fierce uniqueness of the very nature of that wild Scandinavian vocation, which I had so abandonedly embarked. So whaling is is Scandinavian, apparently. Um, uh, but he specifies that he's uh, really quelled his anxieties by the fact that the three mates are all American. Um, uh, yeah. And that they're, they're clearly really great and cheerful and pragmatic and not at all sort of filled with the strange and terrible portents that uh, Ahab is. Um, while also being New England white Americans. Yeah, it's it's sort of like um like that's that's the during the time period before Ahab appears, it's like um Ishmael is, you know, finding himself growing increasingly worried, almost a sense of like, oh god, what have I signed myself up for? Well, at least the people in charge seem normal. Yeah, yeah normal. Yeah, yes. That yeah. is exactly what he's feeling. It's like at least they're normal. Yeah. Oh, um God, there's just so much in this like little bit, because Ahab's so cool. But um <laughs> Ahab, uh, I just want to point out, is um, completely unseen early on, and this is a this is we've only just a few chapters before had the specification that the uh, greatest things are um, ever least mentionable, or wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable, and so and there's really a an ongoing thing throughout the book of what is seen and what is hidden, what is below the surface and what is present, and to some extent, what is below the surface is always sort of more intense and more meaningful. And so I think it's valuable that Ahab remains below the surface, literally below the deck of the ship, unseen for days. And when he does appear, he's a complete cipher. Yeah. Um, and, and like even, you know, there, there's even a more sort of mundane gloss on, on the, um, you know, wonderfulest things are ever unmentionable line or a way to apply that here, which is literally that, you know, he says people don't talk about Ahab's mark, but mm-hmm. obviously people do talk about Ahab's mark. Oh, that's it, a really good point. They talk about it so much that there's competing theories. Right, but it's like it's like something. I mean, what it seems the, the the sense that I get from the way that it's written about here is that people don't often talk about it, but occasionally someone who is like respected enough, like one of these old sailors, will like broach the topic there's because deep it's like Ahab lore. Ex- yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, and, and speaking of, there's more Ahab lore that we haven't gotten to yet, um, which is that he has a leg made out of whale ivory, um, which, uh, you know, we knew about this, uh, that he had a false leg, um, but the kind of, like, visual drama of it, um, is, is, you know, really emphasized now that Ishmael can actually see him. Um, 
and uh, he learns uh, from the, uh, the the gay head native, the same person who had the uh, lightning strike or, or elemental conflict theory, uh, sa- says that um, he has like describes him as having he has a quiver of them, meaning presumably he has a whole bunch of these whalebone legs. Yes, and, and he specifically just swaps them out as needed. This line is so good. It's um. Aye, he was dismasted off Japan, but like his dismasted craft, he shipped another mast without coming home for it. He has a quiver of them. And that is so cool to me. Both um, both the fact that uh, dismasted is being used as the term for having your leg removed. So there's this direct connection between the Pequod and Ahab. And more generally, Ahab is presented as such a consummate whaler that he his own body is like his whaling ship. And, and his own body is is made of the you know the, the the proceeds of his whaling. Yes, right. Like the Pequod, which is a uniquely uh, almost uh, um, grim vessel in that its its uh, railings and much of its um, planking and so much of the Pequod is made from whale parts, and it's really easy to forget that I think over the course of the book because it's such a gothic and outlandish image. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of mention. Uh, just throughout this, of various things being made out of whale ivory. Um, and to be fair, I think some of that is just that that is the reality of, of whaling, that sure you turn the giant whale that you've captured into a lot of stuff. But um, I do think that the, the fact that the Pequod is sort of uniquely uniquely like that in an almost funerary aspect, and similarly, uh, Ahab's grimness is so intensified by his whale ivory leg which he has extras of so that he can like a like a ship which we know that this ship carries i think two or three extra masts worth of timber uh it Mm -hmm. was mentioned in the um in the shipping on section so yeah if the ship is dismasted it can be repaired and ahab be presenting ahab as having taken that position on his leg is clearly not true because he's been fixated on it yeah. Uh, it, well, it's interesting. Um, I, so I know that Ahab is fixated on the loss of his leg, um, but I, and, and like you know, on revenge for that. Uh, but I don't think we really have heard that yet. In I mean, story. It's, a number of people have suggested that the loss of his leg is why he's hanging out. We don't know about the revenge yet, but we know right. that the loss of his leg is why he was holed up and like not visible. Yes. Um, Yes, what I what I think, um, I'm, I'm thinking about not just this chapter, but the, the later ones that we'll continue to discuss. The um, I feel like there's a sense, at least that the the way the crew perceives it, is that Ahab's ivory leg is like part of his mysterious power. Um, Absolutely. Um, like I don't think people look at it as a way in, I mean, obviously they look at it as a way in which he's been injured because it is literally that, but I don't think that they view it as a weakness. I, I agree. I'd also like to point out on that note that we ne- I don't think it says, and I've looked again, it doesn't say which side of his face he has the mark on that goes straight down potentially all the way to a leg, and they don't say which side is his uh, peg leg. Mm, yeah, I don't remember either of those and things being specified. I am so interested in whether the mark is the same side as the leg or not, because the leg is a bright white ivory. And well, it would. I mean, the 
The thing the Manxman claims that, like, the mark goes all the way down to his foot wouldn't make sense if it were on the side where he'd lost a leg. It um, wouldn't, but also, do we know that that's necessarily a barrier? Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I suppose it's entirely possible that it, like, starts on the right side of his head and then, like, kind of spirals around his midsection and ends up on his left leg, you know? Yeah, or there's many possibilities. I just think that there's a real question of whether he ha- whether that mark, if it was a birthmark or if it was a lightning strike, it happened before the loss of his leg in either case, does that mean that he has, like, now this sort of unified white stripe down him, including his peg leg? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that seems... Yeah. yeah. Um, and... and- I think, uh, speaking of uh, his ivory leg and, and the effect it has, like, sort of visually on, on the impression he gives off, um, I, I really love this detail um, that there's a bunch of, like, holes or, like, sort of shallow divots drilled in the deck of the Pequod um, so that Ahab can stick the end of his leg into them and stand, like, completely firm in, you know, one spot and, like, look out over the ocean. Um, specifically, um, holding by a shroud, so with, like, one hand up to a rope, uh, standing, um, at the edge of the, the ship where anyone else actually would need more, uh, more to grip on if there were heavy weather. Yeah, it's like, um, it, 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 it's, it's definitely a case where, you know, because, I mean, on some level, it's probably an accommodation for the fact that the the peg leg probably doesn't, you know, have as much grip on the mm-hmm. deck as, as a booted foot would. Yeah, but, he's also only recently acquired it, so he's yes. not going to be particularly practiced with it yet. Or at least you'd think that, but it's Ahab, so he's, yeah, no, he's a I fucking ubermensch. I think we will see uh, that he is very skilled with yes. that leg, actually. I realized um, what I was saying, and I'm like, nope, nope, that is true about, like, human characters, but not about Ahab. <laughs> um... But yeah, it's interesting to me that, like, you know, um, uh, you could look at this, like, hole drilled as, like, oh, it's, it's you know, it's accommodating for a defect. But I think the, the effect that it ends up having, at least sort of symbolically on how Ishmael looks at him, is that he is much more stable, much more, uh, you know, fast in his specific position than anyone else could ever be. I think that's a really good point. I I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, It's also very much um, sort of part of Ahab's... The the way he appears right here, there's this quotation that says, uh, and not only that, but moody-stricken Ahab stood before them with a crucifixion in his face, in all the nameless, regal-overbearing dignity of some mighty woe. And there's a way in which that that's precisely that sort of the same transformation. There's a, a tragedy in his past, a, a moment of woe, a misery that he is transmuting into this sort of pure strength and fixedness that nobody else on the crew can match. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, and uh, a- after he after he appears on deck for the first time, um, he pretty quickly goes back into the cabinet, but. Uh, you know, then does continue to show up uh, more and more regularly. Um, But he doesn't, he still isn't really, like, running the ship particularly. Um, Because, you know, there doesn't really seem to be anything that he needs to do. The Pequot is just um, uh, only making a passage now, is how it's phrased. Meaning, I think, they're not whaling right now, they're just going to their destination. That's that's Um, how I read that as well, yeah. And they certainly aren't 
whaling at this time. Yeah, like there's no whales in this yeah. water. Um, so, so Ahab is, you know, uh, just coming out of the deck every day to go stand in the same position and look at the water and brood. Um, he broods really well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the best Ishmael can say for him is, is that as, as they sail south and, and the weather gets nicer and warmer, um, Ahab eventually gets close to cracking a smile. Yeah, that entire paragraph is actually really interesting to me because it's such a, a flowery and effusive and like classical illusion style paragraph. It's not literally classical illusion since it involves the months and uh, it has this whole thing about how like, oh, in, with the um, uh, four as when the red-cheeked dancing girls, April and May, trip home to the wintry misanthropic woods, even the barest, ruggedest, most thunder-cloven old oak will at least send forth some few green sprouts to welcome such glad-hearted visitants. So Ahab did, in the end, a little respond to the playful allurings of that girlish air. More than once did he put forth the faint blossom of a look which, in any other man, would have soon flowered out in a smile. Yeah. So it's like, uh, you know, um, it it does it definitely feels like Ishmael is sort of trying at in at the very end of this chapter where where he's like made Ahab really terrifying to be like uh well you know he's uh he's still a person uh he he has he has soft qualities um I, okay I did say he was like burnt hard at the stake and uh, half made of ivory and. Uh, full of a grim woe that I cannot even know, and um, completely impermeable to anything. But I I thought I saw him maybe think of smiling once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting to me that um, while, you know, the rest of this chapter is very poetic, it's, you know, got these really intense descriptions. Again, it has that phrase, like a man cut away from the stake. I just, I love that description. It's It doesn't get, like, effusive and sort of metaphorical in that sense and classically elusive until that paragraph where he's trying really, really hard to lighten Ahab's demeanor. Yeah, I also think to some extent uh, what's going on there is just that Ishmael is really, really glad to finally be getting towards like warm weather and like tropical mm, waters. I think that's um, present as well, yeah. That's also how he starts the next chapter. Oh um, yeah, that's there's an extensive section about how wonderful like slightly warmer air is. Yes. Um Yeah, so uh I think that's pretty much chapter 28. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That's Ahab. Nothing more yep. to see here, folks. We're done. <laughs> yeah, we can go home now. Um this so has yeah, been chapter, the Ahab fan club. <laughs> chapter 29 uh, is titled, Enter Ahab, To Him Stub. Uh, and, uh, Which is, like I think, I said, is that the first of the stage direction uh, chapter titles? I'll, I'll go check the index while you Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. Um, it, it's, this isn't, there, there are some parts later on in the book which are actually, like, structured yeah, yeah. as, like, a play. Um, and this section isn't like that. It is like prose paragraphs. Um, but but yeah, the title is is definitely a stage direction. Yeah, that's the first chapter title that's stage directions. Unlike, for example, uh, any of the ones that are like Times of Day later, or uh, I think First Night Watch and Midnight Foxhole are the two that you're thinking of that are like completely a play. Mm -hmm. But those Enter Ahab to Him Stub is absolutely one of the first that actually has that framework. 
Yeah. So, uh, like I was saying, the, the this chapter begins, uh, Ishmael saying, the Pequod enters tropical waters, um, and the weather becomes so pleasant uh, that it's almost undesirable to sleep, because uh, you can't choose between, you know, do I want to be outside during the day or during the night? Well, they're both beautiful. Um, and uh, this also, at least according to Ishmael, um, this weather is, is prompting deep thoughts and memories um, in, in everyone, including in Ahab. Um, uh, and uh, like, like lots of old men, uh, Ahab doesn't sleep very much. Um, so at this point in the journey, he's actually spending more time on deck than he does in his cabin. Um, and uh, this is where Ahab speaks for the first time. Um, he, saying, uh, re- referring to, um, you know, going back down into his cabin, he says, it feels like going down into one's tomb. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, as, as per definitely usual. definitely feeling warm and pleasant with this weather. He's really feeling like the, the joys of this eternal spring around the equator. Surely Ahab has been softened. <laughs> I mean... You know, if he's what he's saying is it feels like going into my tomb to go out of this like nice, pleasant air and into my, you know, enclosed, unpleasant cabin. Like that doesn't totally contradict it. But but no, you're absolutely right. Like um, <laughs> the like what what Ishmael literally says about, you know, the, the weather affecting Ahab is um, all these subtle agencies, more and more they rot on Ahab's texture. So he really doesn't say what effect he thinks it's having, just that there is one mm-hmm. of some kind. Um, uh, so, Also, uh, this, this first section is just so, again, it's this incredibly elusive and uh, elaborately sort of classically styled section. It's very, it's, it, I think you're right that when, when Ishmael is really enthused about something personally, but isn't necessarily doesn't really want to admit that it's, like, such a personal thing. He goes to this very classical and flowery style. I'm not quite... um, I get what you're saying. I don't think... You keep saying classical illusion, and I think that's going to make people think that he's actually citing You're right. What I mean is... What I mean is that he's mimicking classical style and sort of Shakespearean language. Yeah. With the use of what are not necessarily specifically illusions, though he did allude to Cellini's Perseus previously. Yes. But with... um, just the, the use of personifications, of uh, elaborate multi-stage metaphors and conceits. Uh, you're yeah. right that it's not strictly elusive. It's the, more of these mimicking styles of illusion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just don't want people to think that we are um, saying that there are illusions and then not saying That's what the illusions are because point. we don't yeah, know no, what I, they are. <laughs> I just was using words incautiously. That was That's my mm, mistake. Whatever. Um, so uh, so uh, as he's you know, coming up on deck, uh, all the time. Um, Ahab, generally speaking, um, when he's on the deck at night, has the common decency not to walk around too much, um, because his ivory leg would strike the planks just a few inches from where the mates are sleeping. Um, and, you know, obviously that would be incredibly unpleasant for them. Um, I believe uh, Ishmael specifically says that uh, the the loud crack and noise of uh, walking across the deck like that would have filled their dreams with shark's teeth crunching, which is a lot. I mean, it's surprising to me because it's it's on the one hand that is a terrifying idea that like you would you know be seated with like nightmares of sharks while you're very reasonably in danger of sharks. 
But it's also like, I, I would think it would wake them up, actually, Ishmael. Yeah, entirely possible. Although I will say that I bet that uh, long-term mates on a boat are pretty good at sleeping through a lot. That That's fair. Um, but Even so, that bony step, as Ishmael calls it. Uh, but so one night, uh, Ish- or Ahab uh, doesn't bother uh, to abstain from patrolling. Um, so he is walking around and making all this noise. Um, and it... Uh, it wakes up Stubb, uh, one of the mates. Um, Specifically, I, I do want to point that um, point out that Ahab that Ishmael claims that the mood was on him too deep for common regardings. Like it's not oh yeah he just you know forgot about people and he you know stomped around over their head and woke them up. No, he's too deep in these strange mysteries to be bothered with common people's concerns. Like say bonk 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 bonk. Yes. Um, and, uh, so, you know, um, Stubb comes up, uh, onto the deck to gently suggest that if Ahab is going to walk around, maybe he could, like, put a cotton ball on the end of the ivory leg, please, or something like that. Is that like what that. a glow of tau is? Yeah, well, well, literally, toe? um, I, I think it's pronounced toe, uh, so yeah, my yeah, version cites it. Toe. toe is unspun flax used for padding or to make rope with. So, oh, that's interesting. I, th- I, for some reason, I thought it was like a mix of, of um, like some kind of, I guess, flax or other like plant uh, matter and tar. So I thought mm. it was like a sticky blob. Um, but no, this is a much more reasonable uh, suggestion than I thought it was. Yeah, it's like, okay, we literally have these like f- fluffy padding around. Like, could you please just put some of it on your heel? Um, but... Uh, uh, in response to this, um, Ahab refuses the suggestion and, uh, basically tells Stubb to fuck off. Um, specifically, uh, he orders him down dog and kennel. Um, even, even better than that. He starts with, um, uh, first he says, but go thy ways. I had forgot. Like, you know, I forgot that you're asleep down there. Uh, Below to thy nightly grave, where such as ye sleep between shrouds, to use ye to the filling at one at last. Like, that that whole metaphor of going down below decks to sleep being descending into the tomb, but specifically, uh, you're sleeping between, um, you know, lines and shrouds, so in this case, like, uh, sails that are uh, uh, stored away, um, to get used to being between them so that when you're in your burial shroud, you'll be used to it. Oh, oh, that's, I didn't totally understand. You're totally right. That's what's being said in this sentence. Um, so what that means is when he says to, to use ye to the filling one at last, he means like to get you used to being in a shroud. Yeah. 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 That's like an archaic way of using the word, the verb use that didn't yes. make sense to me. But yeah, I see what I, you mean. I really enjoy that the only part of this that Stubb actually pays attention to is getting called a dog. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, so that's why I, I, that was the part that I quoted, because that's, that's what Stubb really takes offense at, um, uh, to being called a dog. Um, and, and he sort of, you know, Stubb objects, but in a fairly, like, restrained kind of way, you know, uh, he just, I'm not used to be spoken to that way, sir. So, like, he's, he's not, he's kind of, um, Stubb clearly thinks that it, like, understands that it's risky to, um, tell your captain to be nice to you, but he definitely thinks that like he's being treated so poorly that it that he has the right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which uh, in response, 
Ahab calls him ten times a donkey and a mule and an ass, and then he threatens his life and starts, like, walking towards him. So Stubb does what he wants and gets out of there. Um, and, uh, and there's this long paragraph where Stubb is uh, basically muttering to himself as he's going down into the cabin. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he wants to hit Ahab, uh, but it also occurs to him uncharacteristically, uh, to pray for Ahab. Um, and he, he sort of thinks about Ahab's, you know, weird ways, or rather, I shouldn't say weird, I should say queer, uh, because he, he repeatedly uses that term, uh, to describe Ahab and, like, Ahab's general deal. Um, which, uh, you know, obviously, these are the posts we love to see on, uh, Moby Dick at Sea on Twitter. <laughs> um, <sighs> but, uh, yeah, like, uh, he's thinking about Ahab, his, his, like, terrifying expression when he was yelling at Stubb and his, um, how he, he doesn't sleep very much, but it, it seems like he, his sleep is extremely disturbed because when he gets out of bed, his sheets are all, like, tied up in a knot. Um, my favorite and, detail from this is that, uh, the pillow is sort of frightful hot as though a baked brick has been on it. Like, yeah, he's having such terrible dreams that he has a fever. Yeah, or just, like, whatever thoughts are in his head are, like, dense and hot and, uh, like, burnt. Like, he's, he also describes him, like, eyes like flash pans. So, like, the, like, a little pan full of, um, uh, flash powder. Yeah, my, um, my book cites it as, uh, the part of a gun in which gunpowder is held before firing. Ah, yes. Oh. So, so Ahab has burning eyes and a almost literally burning mind yeah um and he also has uh this this habit of um going into the hold every night um which stub doesn't really understand um uh, hey, but, i know what that's about now yeah that one I doesn't mean, come up for a while yeah i definitely uh assumed that was foreshadowing that would pay off in a long while um it's a while yeah uh and uh Stubb thinks that Ahab has a conscience, um, which he understands as uh, basically a, a, a form of chronic pain. Um, like, uh, he, he, he says that, um, you know, having a conscience is worse than a toothache. Uh, he also and, says, I don't know what it is, but the Lord keep me from catching it. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 uh, he's definitely like, damn, a conscience would hate, to, would hate to have one of those. Um, and, uh, you know. Uh, then Stubb just decides, uh, you know, never mind, I'm not going to think about this anymore, um, because it breaks my principles. Um, and, uh, uh, the, the, the quote is, uh, think not is my 11th commandment and sleep when you can is my 12th. Um, which I, I like those as, um, you know, uh, the maxims by which Stubb lives his life. Mm-hmm. I definitely think you can... Uh, see, like, I mean, you can see why, um, he doesn't really want to think about all this stuff with Ahab, because there's so much going on, it's so upsetting, and he has no way of escaping it, right? Yeah, I like, know, that's, Ahab is, like, king on this boat, in fact, there's, there's some descriptions of him sitting regally, uh, around here, and Stubb can't really do much about it, and also Ahab is clearly not working on the same, like, way of thinking that anyone else is yeah yeah um so uh 
having basically decided, uh, don't worry about it, um, Stubb, you know, goes to, goes to bed, uh, and says he'll, he'll think it over in the morning. Mm-hmm. Well, he um, also, um, he also has this moment of, like, did, did he kick me with his, with his ivory leg? Did, did that happen? Did I just miss it because I was so upset? I, I feel like he kicked me, but I, he didn't kick me. And it's a, it's a weird moment. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, it, it's like, it's almost like it would have been more normal uh, for Ahab to kick him in this context as a way of, you know, shutting him up and asserting his authority uh, than for Ahab to insult him verbally. I think it's that, but also to some extent Stubb just, I, you know, I think he's a whaler. He's a, he's a rough and tumble boy who goes out on a boat and kills whales. Stubb's not the kind of person that you probably should be able to make back down by glaring at them. Yeah. And he, you know, felt very insulted. This is the captain, but he clearly sort of, um, you know, he, he, he says he might as well have kicked me and done with it. Maybe he did kick me and I didn't observe it. I was so taken all aback with his brow somehow. It flashed like a bleached bone. Um, just this, this sense that Ahab's force of personality is so strong that it should have been a physical blow but wasn't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's, uh... This, there's also, there's just so many good things in this paragraph. Like, um, first of all, uh, he briefly calls Ahab a hot old man. <laughs> which, obviously, very different meaning than the one we're imputing to it. But uh, all I can think of is that time in the early chapters of Frankenstein, where um, the older uh, uh, Mr. Frankenstein, not Dr. Frankenstein, uh, Victor's father, uh, describes Cornelia Agrippa, Cornelius Agrippa, the alchemist, as sad trash. <laughs> and I just, I crack up every time, and, and this actually has to do with my, my, my grad study, so I've, I've read that book like three times in grad school, and I just break down every time I hit that paragraph, because it's in the early 1800s, and it's someone holding up a book of alchemy going, ah, this is sad trash. Yeah, it's just, put this on the TL today, there's no difference. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, also like, you know, uh, like... Ahab has a cool scar, and, like, he looks incredibly tough, and every, like, facial expression he has expresses his, like, terrible woe and his unstoppable force of personality. So, like, uh, yes, I think Ahab probably is hot, at least to, like, again, to the TL. Yeah, yeah, um, I really like the illustrations in my copy of Moby Dick. The woodcuts make Ahab look really cool, so I'm certainly not going to disagree there. Um... Yeah, I, uh, he's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, there's also the, another of these great lines from Stubb is, um, uh, damn me, but all things are queer, come to think of them. But that's against yeah. my principles. Yeah, thinking of them. Yeah. Is Stubb a him, but no, no, unsay, unsay, unsay. I don't think Stubb is attractive. Um, Fair enough. So, also Stubb isn't, like, very nice. This is a thing that I have... <laughs> often, when people are on the internet being like, is this person a himbo? I feel they don't take into consideration that, like, being nice is part of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. I, I, I don't have strong opinions on himbos. Uh, not my lane. But um, I, I think that's a good argument, and... 
it is certainly the case that the one character that I will... Is the phrase Stan as a himbo? I will defend as a himbo, which is um, Gallo from uh, Promare. He's nice. Uh, yeah, that, He's they're, a nice they're, that, that really can't be debated. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would disagree with you on that one. I thought cool, what you were cool. about to say was the one character in Moby Dick that you would hold up <laughs> as a himbo. Um, um, and I, I mean, I think the, um, the thing is, I think that Ishmael... Um, I think that Ishmael, like, ha- considers, like, masculinity and, like, ideal masculinity to include intelligence. Um, mm. Like, I think that, uh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it and, and um, I feel like he, Ishmael wouldn't describe someone as, like, a, a physically strong and, like, beautiful but unintelligent I think he would describe that person as, like, kind of a brute rather than, like, someone he admires. Yeah, and I also think that his model of intelligence is one that has a lot of space for, like, a... I mean, it's an often deeply problematic, like, a kind of intuition or, uh, like, like, arete in the old Greek sense. Yeah. Which I don't think actually can be unintelligent and to some extent sort of implies that people who are very intelligent but lack arte aren't really that smart like they're like i think ishmael might describe himself as not that smart because while he's very well educated and very uh capable in many ways of um i mean grabbing onto these various abstract concepts and playing with them and i mean he's the the vessel through which all the cool stuff in this book comes i think he would probably insist that he's maybe of average intelligence and queequeg is much more intelligent because queequeg is more immediately perspicacious and sensible and these various other things that i think fit his sense of an excellent person better yeah yeah all right so uh Shall we? Sorry for that. No, no. I think it was an interesting discussion. Uh, but let's let's continue and uh, go to chapter 30, The Pipe. Um, which is, this is one of those very short chapters. Um, so after Stubb leaves, uh, Ahab sends for his pipe and his ivory stool, and he, he sits regally smoking for a little while. Um, which, which is... Come to think of it, um, it, it it's it's surprisingly like accommodating of him. Like he did just you know call Stub a dog and a donkey and and tell him to like go die. But he also is doing what Stub asked for, which is to stop stomping around on the deck. Yeah, he he did say um, uh, he did say, but go thy ways. I had forgot before insulting Stub grievously. Yeah, there's a little bit of an element of like uh, like. Like, yeah, you're right, but how dare you call me out? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that is exactly the, um, the dynamic that exists here, uh, with Ahab's basic approach to captaining. Yeah. Um, but, uh, while Ahab is, uh, sitting and smoking, uh, he realizes that it's, it's not really soothing him the way it normally would. Um, and, uh, he, he reflects that, um, Quote, this thing that is meant for sereneness, i.e., you know, his pipe, smoking, has nothing to do with him anymore. Uh, so he just tosses it into the ocean, still lit, uh, and starts pacing again. I think you should read that paragraph, because it's, or at least that that, that last sentence, because it's really good. Uh, the, 
which last sentence are you Starting with this thing that is meant. Oh, yes. Sorry. I thought you meant the last sentence of the chapter. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. This thing that is meant for sereneness, to send up mild white vapors among mild white hairs, not among torn iron gray locks like mine. I'll smoke no more. Yeah, so I I think this, this, what's going on in this chapter is basically like Ahab realizing that the person he is now, you know, the, the, the ivory leg version of Ahab has become like incapable of the basic human pleasures. Yeah, I I think this is also, it's interesting that this is the chapter where we get that explicit comparison of Ahab to royalty. Yes. Um, talking about how he sits on a stool that is um, uh, made with the tusks of narwhals, or at the very least is of ivory. My my illustrations obviously show it as the tusks of narwhals, but um, it's I don't think it's explicit in the book. But... Um, he does, it does have this amazing line, how could one look at Ahab then, seated on that tripod of bones, without bethinking him of the royalty it symbolized? For yeah. a con of the plank, and a king of the sea, and a great lord of leviathans was Ahab. It's really biblical. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, Ahab is, is like, sort of attempting to, to hold court a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, He's it's also not doing something really silly which is that he's smoking on the weather side of the deck which means that he's smoking on the deck the wind is coming onto wait a minute you're right yeah and he didn't notice at all like he says um wait yeah no and it literally here have i been unconsciously toiling not pleasuring i and ignorantly smoking to windward all the while to windward and with such nervous whiffs as if like the dying whale my final jets were the strongest and fullest of trouble yeah Oh my also, God. as we learn more about, like, the signs of whaling and what shows up in that, um, uh, this is a very minor spoiler that I think will show up actually in cytology, which we'll get to, um, which is that uh, the whalers know that they have killed the whale when its spout spumes red, when the blood is in the foam that comes up, because that means its, its lungs have burst, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, or And it, in generally, it's, it's just fucked, and it can't dive again at that point. Because its lungs have burst. Right. So um, the idea that he's like thinking about the white smoke coming up out of his pipe that he's just blasting out directly into the wind and it's blowing away um, as if it's the the spuming of a whale that may spume red is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, no, this, this, it's a short chapter. It's a re- all of the short chapters are so good. Yeah, I think yeah, this might even be shorter than my favorite chapter. I think that's true, yeah. Um, <sighs> I haven't, really like, bad. counted the number of words or whatever, but I, I think yeah. you're right. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's, that's chapter 30, the pipe. Yep, um, yep. And now for the, sorry, were you? Oh, I was just going to say that, um. It also notes that when he throws the pipe overboard and it's it's the the still lit pipe is extinguished by the waves, it's immediately lost uh, to stern as the ship sails on and it stops in the water. And yes. that's first of all something I've experienced on boats. If you like toss Drop. off, say a peach pit or like you know things or food for seagulls and toss or a stone and toss it into the water, and you're going at any kind of speed, it just as soon as it hits the water, it just shoots off to the stern. Yeah. So, chapter 31 is titled Queen Mab. And now for something completely different, sort of. 
Well, this is sort of back to what we were doing in chapter 29. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because this is uh, back to Stubb uh, the next morning. Uh, like when he was saying he was going to think all this stuff over in the morning. This is this is him doing that, kind of. Um, uh, and specifically, uh, he's telling Flask about a dream he had. Um, and in the dream, Ahab kicks Stubb with his ivory leg. Uh, but Stubb... And Stubb tries to kick back, um, but his own leg comes right off uh, because Ahab is a pyramid, um, meaning like Ahab is like an immovable stone monument in the dream. Or, or I mean, possibly he's literally become like a like a pyramid with a Ahab face on the side. It is a dream. Weird shit like that could happen. Um, yeah, he keeps referring to the pyramid. Um, so I I think that Ahab may have turned into a completely blank stone pyramid, but it's. Look, you know that thing where if someone tries to explain their dream to you and you're sort of nodding along and you're trying to get it because you really do want to, like, you know, understand what they're talking about, but it's this bizarre series of images that clearly have a lot of emotional meaning to them? That's what's going on here. Yes, that is absolutely this chapter. Um, I think the reason I have a hard time visualizing Ahab as literally being a pyramid rather than, like, pyramid kind of meaning stone monument here is because he also has a leg, like an ivory leg. Mm, that's and a that, good that, that's point. part of the whole dream so <laughs> i mean um, he, he had an ivory does he still have the ivory like after he becomes the pyramid i i guess it's hard to say i mean they keep talking about the ivory leg throughout the whole dream that's but maybe true. yeah i don't know um anyhow so um so uh speaking of the ivory leg um uh stub starts thinking to himself even though he's, like, in, enraged because he's been kicked, uh, he does think to himself that a, a kick with a false leg really isn't an insult compared to a kick with a living one. Um, and it's it's really more like a caning than a kick, which I guess in the hierarchy of, like, corporal punishment that sailors know, that's not as bad. Um, yeah, he states that uh, that's what makes a blow from the hand, Flask, because he's, he's telling Flask, 50 times more savage to bear than a blow from a cane. The living member, that makes the living insult. And that's a that's interesting, because a cane is going to hurt a hell of a lot more. Well, depends on the blow from the hand. I mean, that's, um, that's fair, but just in terms of leverage, if someone's striking you as hard as they can with their hand, like, they can certainly hurt you, but if they're striking as hard with a cane, it may not, uh, it might have less weight to it and not, like, do as much deep impact. But that's, the whole point of corporal punishment as a cane is that it stings a lot more than a slap. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I do find myself wondering um, whether this idea that, like, being physically kicked with someone's foot is, is more insulting than being hit with a stick is... Like, I wonder if that was actually true in the sense that, like, did people... Did, did whalers look at it that way? Um, I don't know. I do know that in various navies, getting, like, struck with a cane or lashed with a rope were, like, the standard corporal punishments. So, um, question mark, question mark, question mark? Yeah, like, it, it is clear, um, you know, uh, especially I think the, the chapters we're reading today make it clear that, like, getting kicked by your superiors is just a part of life on the yeah. Pequod, and, and I think just... Yeah, I think Ishmael ships. actually got. I think Ishmael got either threatened with or like lightly booted during the uh, the ship leaving by one of the mates. Yeah, I think that that I think I remember that he was like dawdling or you know was yeah, perceived yeah. to be dawdling, um, and and that was 
was that when he he said that thing about like well it's not so bad everyone gets kicked you know it, yes, it's, it's just yes. the the universal suffering of man or whatever and that's a real great in, uh way of framing um ishmael's way of handling these sort of things compared to uh say stubs <laughs> yes um so uh uh, while Stubb is is trying to kick the pyramid Ahab, um, he, he I'm gonna quote I'm gonna quote here a sort of badger haired old merman with a hump on his back uh, appears and stops him, um, and Stubb threatens the merman with a kicking as well. Uh, so he turns around and reveals that his hump back is full of marlin spikes. Um, it was and... it, it was Captain Peleg who kicked him, not not one of the mates. My bad. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, and it was in uh, chapter twenty-two. Merry Christmas. Uh, so the, the 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 dream merman reveals that his back is full of spikes, and Stubb thinks better of kicking him. You know, presumably he doesn't want to get spiked. Um, uh, and he goes to start kicking Ahab again, um, but the merman stops him uh, and argues that uh, that actually it's an honor uh, to be kicked by Ahab's ivory leg um, because you know because Ahab is a great man. Um, and then he compares it to, like, being knighted, uh, which, which he describes as being slapped by a queen. Oh, that's what that was about. I, I had not thought of the fact that you actually, like, get lightly bonked during the knighthood. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 I think you're right. I think that's what it is. Um, but yeah, so, you know, uh, uh, they, this dream merman argues, argues basically what, Stubb is, you know, going to, I think, more or less argue in the waking world, which is like, oh, it's not so bad to be kicked by Ahab, especially if it's with his ivory leg. Um, and uh, then that's the end of the dream, and he wakes up. Um, uh, so this this merman is definitely a whale, right? Because he has a humpback, and he's, yeah. he's, he's badger-haired, which um, my copy cites as meaning, like, salt-and-pepper-haired. Um, which, you know, whales have, like, a salt and pepper appearance. Um, and also his back is full of spikes, which I yeah, assume, I assume is, like... Yeah, I assume harpoons, of... yeah. Exactly, yeah. That, ha- that, have, that have remained in it. And specifically, a white and black stubbled uh, humpbacked whale, it could be, in some sense, the white whale. Potentially, yeah. Um, does... spe- specifically, he has... One thing that I will say about Moby Dick when we eventually, eventually get to him is that he is legendarily covered in the harpoons of those who have failed to kill him. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting uh, that Stubb doesn't make that connection at all. Um, because, I mean, you would think, like, marine creature with a humpback, you'd think that like he would immediately go, oh, a whale. I don't know that they actually hunt humpback whales. Like, that that's a thing, but they hunt sperm whales primarily, and, like, right whales. and mm, That's that, true, that's that true. Pilot whales, I think? There's a whole thing in the next chapter about which whales you want to hunt. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, he has the, so the, the dream ends, or he, he finishes describing the dream, um, and Flask says it sounds kind of stupid. Um, but, uh, Stubb says that... He really does. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we were talking about how, like, sometimes people are... Sometimes when you're hearing someone tell you about their dream, it's just like, okay, this is, like, 
this doesn't mean anything to me. Like yeah, all this imagery yeah. is is muddled, and like this is something that only made sense to you when you were dreaming it. And yeah, I, think I totally that is... agree. It's just that he's. You said this seems kind of stupid. I was like, is that? Hmm. I look at the the sentence on the page, and it's. I don't know. It seems a sort of foolish to me, though. It's like, yeah, no, that's that's literally what he said. Yep, yep. Uh, but Stubbs' response to that is like, well, uh, it's made a wise man of me. Uh, specifically, it has taught me to never ever talk back to Ahab. <laughs> Also, like, never talk to him, period. Uh, never is... The best thing you can do, Flask, is to let the old man alone. Never speak to him, whatever he says. Uh, what it says in my copy is, never speak quick to him, which it cites as meaning, like, talk back, defy. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, but, I mean, it's true that, like, uh, uh, the general sense of, like, just leave Ahab alone, do not bother him, don't talk to him if you don't have to... Like, that yeah. is the, the I'm just the vibe. interested that we have a slightly different edition in that respect. But, eh. Yeah. It's not a big deal. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, All transmission of uh, true knowledge is muddled by this material world. Yes. Yeah, I would assume that your copy is, you know, more likely correct, because, as, as per usual, I'm using PowerMobyDick.com, a free website where you can read Moby Dick. Um, whereas Ben has uh, this gorgeous print edition. Um, I love it so much. <sighs> so I, much as I love PowerMobyDick.com, I do have a little more faith in the, like, uh, editors of, of your copy. Yeah, that that's entirely possible. I also really like what they did with Queequeg's uh, signature in this one. Mm, yeah, that was cool. So, um... Uh, yeah, no, yeah. this is... I don't often get, like, super... Uh, I wanted to say commodity fetishy, but that's absolutely incorrect. I don't often get super fixated on, like, physical books. Um, I absolutely enjoy them, but I like getting them out of the library. And then I got this particular copy out of the library for a while, and then realized I desperately needed it, and, like, got it online. And I'm just, I'm so happy with it. It's got, like, a canvas, canvas covers and, uh, and woodcuts in, like, really nice black and white. The, um, oh, the, the podcast, uh, header image is a cropped version of one of these woodcuts. Yeah, yeah. At some point, probably before this episode comes out, I'm going to, you know, start, like, posting those pictures, too. So that, look forward to that, or look back to that, more likely. <laughs> yeah. There's um, a really nice, uh, there's really nice Ahab in this one that we should make sure we repost when the episode comes out. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, interrupting Flask and Stubbs' discussion is, uh, Ahab, who's, who's, he's not actually, like, interrupting them in the sense of, he's not coming into their conversation, but he's just, like, calling out to uh, the people at the masthead, um, which is to say they're, like, standing up at the top of the mast, scouting. Um, and Ahab's telling them to call out as soon as they see a white whale, um, which leaves Stub and Flask wondering what the hell that was about. Um, There's something special in the wind. Stand by for it, Flask. Ahab has that that's bloody on his mind. Uh, but then, you know, Ahab starts coming towards them, so they, they have to stop talking about him. Um, which So, a white whale. I wonder what that could mean. Yeah, this is the first mention of the white whale, right? Like, I, mean, I we... believe so, and in, in fact, it's uh, a white one. Not even the white one at this yeah. point. Yeah, Ahab is, is really keeping his um, quest like under his hat still at this point yeah it's 
He hasn't and, even, he didn't even mention to anybody that they should particularly look out for white whales until they were actually in water where there might be whales. Yeah, I, and I think that's really interesting. Again, in the concept of this, like, the idea that Ahab is full of this unseen both power and knowledge and sort of purpose, which I'm going back to Knights and Squires. The second Knights and Squires, thanks, Melville, um, where uh, it says, accompanying old Ahab and the Pequod to lay the world's grievances before that bar from which not very many of them ever come back. Like, there's already this idea that Ahab has a purpose and a goal and that this sort of this, this secret intelligence rules the Pequod and drives it forward, but nobody knows what it is yet, and Ahab has not yet revealed it. And I think that's very interesting. Yeah. I think that this, um, this quest of Ahab's that already has started to sort of draw together the crew in t- uh, behind him, um, and which we are, not the next chapter, but over the chapters after that, going to, uh, going to start getting into leading into uh, some of my favorite moments in the book when Ahab declares his vendetta. Yeah. Um, and uh, as you just implied, uh, I'm, I'm very entertained by the fact that, um, you know, this chapter literally ends with like, oh, Ahab's showing up and interrupting this conversation. So you would logically think, especially because the past like four chapters have all been about Ahab, uh, that maybe we're going to get more Ahab dialogue. No, the next chapter is all about what whales are. What are whales? How are whales? How big are whales? And what do you get from whales? Yes. Why um, whales? Uh, Eight thousand words of cetology. That will be our next, oh, our God. next, uh, our next episode. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, like, there's citations, and there's this episode. This next episode is going to be a weird one, my friends. I'm excited. I mean, uh, you know, we're going to have a whale of a time. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um. Yeah. You want, it's not set some a G, it's set all a G. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah, but uh, that will be, you know, um, in a while. Oh, Uh, I did have one thing I wanted to bring up that I realized got completely left out of last episode in the Lee Shore. And it's it's something that I've thought of because we've been talking about sort of Ahab's unseen purpose and sort of the the degree to which Ahab's surface hides his deeper self Mm -hmm. Um, is that, uh, you know, um, wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. I'm going to say that a lot for the rest of this podcast, but um, something that I don't think came up that I think is important is that uh, a term in, I think by the 1800s already, but certainly sort of in the culture for uh, same-sex attraction was the love that cannot speak its name or dare not speak its name. And I think that, I mean, there's often discussion of, for example, um, Melville's personal uh, deep friendship obsession and almost certainly uh, crush on Nathaniel Hawthorne being a major influence on this book. And you've also got, obviously, the Queequeg and Ishmael relationship. Um, and I think- so, Sorry? Well, it's worth mentioning that uh, I, I think that phrase is specifically something. Okay, yeah, it, it, it's it's from a um, a poem written in 1892. Um, okay, so, so that's it, shortly. Not... That's that's about 40 years after. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, not to say that I, I think you are totally right to draw a connection between like like. 
I, I don't know if I even want to say it's like literally same-sex attraction that is in this novel so much as it is like uh, same-sex bonds. Like, because I don't really think that, you know, we, we, we joked a bunch about like um, the relationship between Ishmael and Queequeg being like obviously gay and like Ishmael, you know, like admiring Queequeg's body and all that is there. Yeah. But, but I think that, um, I think it's, it's, it's a little a bit of an oversimplification to look at it as a purely sexual thing. Oh, um, cer- certainly. I, I mean, I personally, I would think that it's a very romantic and in some ways very chaste uh, approach. Like, the thing that is so moving to Ishmael and that he's so uh, committed to, while he does think that Queequeg's just super cool in every possible way, especially physical... It's that sort of marriage that they have that he explicitly like talks about in terms of a marriage and that they can have this sort of uh, deep and not necessarily stated bond. Yeah. And, and I think there is also like a, a meaningful kind of uh, unspeakable tension and bond between Ishmael and Ahab. Um, mm. um, That's, that is something that I want to return to because I think that the relationship between Ishmael and Ahab is interesting and incredibly understated in the book yeah like we certainly haven't seen like we have not at this point really seen the two of them actually interact i Um, I honestly can't remember any instances where we get much about their interactions right ishmael is very much one of the crew but we also obviously are are hearing everything we're hearing about ahab through ishmael's perspective yes Um, and he does he clearly has this like fascination with Ahab, with, oh, with Ahab as a, as a character, as a king, as a hero. Yeah, I I think that everyone on the Pequod has, is ultimately oriented around Ahab. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's like, I think, like, everyone on the Pequod is, is oriented around Ahab, but at least some people on the Pequod are responding to that by going, you know what? Just don't worry about it. Like, that's what Stubb <laughs> is doing, and that's what he's obviously advising Flask to do. Um, but that is clearly not what Ishmael is doing. I mean... That's true. I I guess what I'd say is I feel like the relationship with Ahab is almost exegetical, or like, uh, it's... Or, or prophetic. It's it's almost a religious attempt to make sense of Ahab. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's totally fair. Um, um, but anyways, just... I suppose my, my point is just that I think that if we're talk if we're since I think about a lot of this book in terms of what is hidden and what is revealed, what can be spoken and what cannot, um, and and sort of what is actually understood or expressible and what isn't, I think the fact that we have this really strong bond between Queequeg and um, Ishmael that nonetheless has these elisions and these uncertainties and these these hidden elements in the context of Melville's own relationship with Hawthorne really does point to that being sort of a backbone of the story. Yeah, yeah, I think that is absolutely true. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, boy, do you mind if I, like, go slightly into kind of, um, you know, history of sexuality stuff about this? Of course, that, I, I absolutely cede the floor. Yeah, so, like, um, it's, it's, it's always, uh, interesting and complicated trying to talk about, like, homosexuality, I guess, or like queerness um, in a historical text, because the word homosexual was invented, I believe, in the 1890s. Um, so and and like, you know, uh, more than that, like, it's not just literally people made up a word for something that 
like already existed but had no name it's it's that the entire cultural concept of a of a homosexual or a gay person like a person who has a an orientation um rather than like a person who ha- does some sexual acts with some people at different times but like it's not um the idea that you would view that as part of your identity and as like a like a category of people um is yeah it's an idea that that had to be invented and um that was like it would be untrue to say that um you know n- nothing nothing that was part of the like historical roots of the development of homosexuality existed when uh when Melville was writing like certainly it did uh, the that entire concept didn't spring up out of nowhere in 1890. Um, but uh, it does mean that's part of why I, I said that I don't really think um, there, there's a big sexual element to this, because I think that um, one of the things that, you know, was was sort of possible for people to understand in, like, the mid-1800s was a kind of, like, deep romantic friendship or bond um between you know between men um that like uh you know that that it's like that kind of bond becomes legible as potentially being homosexual once the concept of homosexuality exists um and and it makes it you know to modern people looking back at a text like moby dick it's like oh it's very obvious to us. Um, but, uh, it's, yeah, that I'm, I'm, gosh, this is so, so I, weird. I'm like reaching back to my undergrad stuff and I don't totally remember everything. So if anybody who has a, a better, who is better informed on like queer history than me wants to write in, I, I definitely welcome it. But yeah, yeah. yeah. that's the, So I, I do want to not necessarily push back. Cause I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. It is the case that there was um, already prior to this, uh, there were, for example, sodomy laws. There was, an, there was an opposition to certain kinds of sex acts that certainly existed in American and European culture uh, prior right. to this point on a, on a legal level. And what this meant was that I'm just going to sort of take it as given that there were people who were attracted, even if it wasn't necessarily a sort of an identification thing, and who therefore had to either hide it or find ways to do it that uh, find ways to make those connections sexual or romantic or both without being sort of found out and to some extent this create this created a obviously different from present or 20th century um, or you know Victorian as you pointed out um, experience but I do think that for example we have a lot of you know con- we have a lot of letters and stuff between Melville and Hawthorne that paints a very complicated picture I am certainly not competent to give a, a complete summary of, but is often summarized by Melville scholars as Melville having this immense attraction to Hawthorne that probably wasn't reciprocated and couldn't really be talked about openly. Yes. And to be to be clear, I have no way of knowing, again, without doing a much deeper read into it and reading a bunch of history books and generally having a lot more knowledge on the subject than I do, um, I can't say anything about the dimensions of that other than that it was pretty clearly not something that the two of them were on the same page about. Yeah, and, and it's um, it's interesting. Something that um, 
I, I think that the the sort of division between like acts and identity, right, that that um that existed before the the sort of definition of homosexuality, um, mm-hmm. it had had. I think what that means is that, like. I I think that it's very hard to say for sure, but I I think that um, Melville and Melville's readers, um, well, I was about to say something about, like, there wouldn't be anything that they looked at as, like, inherently, like, sodomy-related or, like, sodomite. Yeah. Sexual about, like, the the Queequeg-Ishmael relationship. But on the other hand, there is the fact that, like, there's a long historical association of, like, sailors with sodomy. Um, and, yeah. uh... I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just a little uncomfortable with, with the, the degree to which we've... I, I think that we can just talk about it as sort of same-sex attraction and oh. acts in those terms, just because it, it just feels weird. Oh, yeah, that's... You know, that's completely fair. That didn't even, um, occur to me. <laughs> because I, I... I mean, because I am queer, and so, like... I don't worry about whether it's okay for me to say the word sodomy, but I, I get what you're saying. It was um, the point at which it was like, ah, yes, the denizens of Sodom. And I was, I mean, you didn't say that, obviously, but the, the phrase sodomite to me just immediately made me, made me think of, like, every weird book from, like, the, the 1800s or the early 1900s that I've read where that, that term gets used. And I was just like, hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, um... I don't want to get too much into this because we are at the end of our episode and have been recording for a while now. But um, yeah, it's it part of the um, part of the like shift in understanding of like same sex sexuality is that um, like like you're saying we know because of like sodomy laws that like obviously people were having uh, same sex 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, and. Uh, and, and we know for other reasons, but that's one of the reasons we know it was the case. And, um, but it was, like, understood to ha- occupy the same, like, legal role as, like, um, you know, as uh, everything else that term applies to, which would include, like, anal sex between uh, heterosexuals, but also, mm-hmm. like, uh, bestiality um, and... Things that we are not okay with, which is a very long list. Yeah, like, I, I think probably basically any kind of, like, Non-reproductive sex? Crime? sex? Yeah, I, I... I mean, it, so it wasn't... It, I think we have... I think at this point we have reached the limits of what we can reasonably uh, say is falls under this. Like, you know, this is a complicated topic. Please research it. Um, but uh, I, I guess I just wanted... I, the reason I brought it up is that I just think that that's an important kind of thing that could could not necessarily be spoken or could only be spoken indirectly that would not necessarily have been easily legible to immediately legible to readers as such but from historical context from Melville's own biography from what we have seems to have been very much present in his life at the time yeah yeah I think that's a that's a reasonable like take um yeah yeah it's it's a like uh, the, I, I almost um, think about the way that Ishmael's like Ishmael's attraction to and like bond with Queequeg is written almost feels like um, like a, a, a 
you know, th- this is like total speculation, but it, it feels to me like a wave of for Melville of like writing attractions that he really felt in a, a way that is very, um, that would be like unobjectionable in, to some degree. Um, like if there is something that's objectionable in the, the bond between um, Queequeg and Ishmael, I think it's the like racial element of it. It's, it's the admiration mm-hmm. of Queequeg, even though he is not and, white. And the religious element. I, yes. I, to, because again, I think that Melville conflates those two categories pretty uh, intensely, like almost coterminously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I think, um, you know, uh, in, in, in a lot of like of the passages about, Queequeg as a character, I, I feel like I get the sense that uh, we are we are being presented almost like like who wouldn't fall in love with this guy? You yeah, know? absolutely. Um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. Again, not actually an area of my expertise, so I, I just thought it was worth bringing up because I think that it's, um, you know, it's. Uh, it's a thing that we talked a lot about prior, and then it doesn't. I think basically my thought line, my line of thought was, Queequeg is still present and is still really cool throughout the rest of the book, and Ishmael's still super into him, but they don't have that much like actual interaction or anything like those first few chapters, basically for the rest of the book. Yeah, and so I felt that I think that that. Uh, you know, uh, greatest things are most unmentionable or um, wonderfulest things are most unmentionable uh, is something that could easily have slipped past because that, that statement had not yet been made when we get the most uh, Queequeg and uh, Ishmael being married. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I think that about does it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Char Asnablunt. Uh, and you can find me at at Silkenstone. And uh, yeah, you can also find a whole bunch of other really great podcasts um, on abnormalmapping.com, um, which is, you know, you can also find our podcast there. I assume you know that probably if you're <laughs> listening to us. Uh, but yeah, I definitely recommend um, giving some of those other shows a listen. I think probably the one that I would plug uh, as like being most kind of similar in concept to this is... Um, Oh, shoot, that's not actually an abnormal mapping show. That's just a show that the abnormal mapping people are on. <laughs> Never mind. Well, I, I'll plug it wah, anyway wah, since wah, I've, wah. since I've uh, you know, uh, uh, led into Backed this. yourself um, into a corner? Yes. Uh, and it's a good show. I think people should listen to it. I'm talking about uh, Romance of the Two Networks, um, which is a podcast uh, where uh, the, the four hosts are reading through the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, um, which is a... I mean, an almost totally different book, but it is also an epic, um, which this book also have we, is. Have we had the whole argument about whether Moby Dick is an epic? Not like arguing with each other, but made the argument that Moby Dick is an epic yet. We're not doing that today. We're, we're out of time. But uh, I, I mean, I don't really think it needs to be made. Like, I, I, I think, mean, I think Moby Dick is one of it, the classic, like, established American epics. I the concept of established American epic is itself a complicated and fraught one. Okay. Like, I, it's not a... It's I guarantee not an epic you, poem. Okay, yes, it's true. Um, it, if one is going to define epic in a particular narrow way, then yes, obviously Moby Dick doesn't apply. It's not in well, fucking no, hexameter. What I, what I mean is that there... 
I have known professors who would argue that no novel can be an epic because novels post-date the period in which, like, I think Lukash argues more or less that the epic pre-exists the novel and can't actually be made to coexist with it, but he likes novels that are similar to epics. Okay, well, you're totally right. We don't have time for that today. We should talk about it later. See? See? <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.